that was the perception years ago, you know, that these animals were surrendered because they're problem animals or they were surrendered because owners didn't like them or didn't want them or they were bad animals. They somehow were not good enough to have a home. And I think the reality is, you know, from volunteering and working at Chicago Mold Care Control is that animals get surrendered for a multitude of reasons. Dogs in shelters and cats in shelters are usually there not because of their own reasons. They're usually there because of, you know, reasons that affect the ability for the family to care for them, whether it's a landlord or a loss of a job, the birth of a baby. There's a lot of things that happen that the family can no longer provide for that, that animal. So no, are they broken in any way? No. Um, does every animal have a quirk? Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the beauty in rescue is that when you when you adopt an adult dog, you know, especially one that's already lived in a foster home, you kind of know what you're getting. You know, that's the best part. Is- Welcome back to the All Things Connected podcast. Well, today's episode is about an issue which I am very passionate about and one which, frankly, up until six years ago... I had no idea the scale of, which I think is true for many people in this country. And that issue is the state of homeless pets in the United States. And the fact that we continue to euthanize almost a million dogs and cats every year, most of them entirely healthy. This is for many reasons, but primarily because of lack of spaying and neutering in too few adopting homes. For this episode, everyone who writes an honest review of the show I'm not forcing people to leave a positive review or forwards this episode to a friend. I will donate $5 to Emancipet, which is a national organization that provides low cost or free spay and neuter in at-need communities or the animal shelter of your choice. If there's a different charity you prefer me to send the $5 to for your review, you can make that case to me as well. My email again is jhawking at umich.edu. Today, I'm speaking with Christine Nendick the founder of Rescue in Style and Rescue Chicago. As you'll hear in this conversation, the amount of selfless good that Christine does for the homeless pets as well as people in Chicago is truly inspiring. While our conversation centers largely on the issues surrounding the vast number of homeless pets and what are the reasons for this issue, including myths around rescue dogs and the reasons that they're not valid, why often adopting or fostering a dog can be a safer choice than going through a breeder. We also discuss larger issues and topics related to creating change, like what are the best approaches to inspire behavior change in family and friends, living according to one's values by recognizing others might not have the the same priorities, the importance of being non-judgmental, and other topics. One thing you'll hear in this episode is that if only 2% of animal-owning homes in the United States decided to foster a cat or dog, we could end euthanasia tomorrow. Let me say that one more time. If only 2% of the animal-owning homes temporarily fostered a dog or cat, we could save 733,000 innocent lives tomorrow. So if you come away from this episode with nothing else, consider connecting with your local animal shelter to foster a cat or dog, and you can truly be the person that saves life. I hope you come away from this conversation inspired like I am to do more to help the homeless pets in this country. And now I bring you Christine Nendick. Okay, so I'm here with Christine Nendick, who is the founder and chief <laughs> cat officer, we might say, at um, Rescue and Style. 
And uh, Christine and I have kind of known each other virtually for a while. I've been following her efforts to create awareness in the rescue community in Chicago, but this is the first time we're talking and it's really an honor to have you on the podcast, Christine. I'm very excited for our conversation. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I am always excited to talk about animals and getting other people involved in rescue and and sharing the adopt, don't shop message. So I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, I think this is a really important conversation that we're going to have. And I do, I'm very eager to talk about rescue and style and your journey founding your own company. I think kind of framing the importance of the issue of rescue, I think will be important. And it's something that not enough people know about. I think that in in our country every year, according to the most recent estimates, um, about 733,000 dogs and cats are euthanized every year, which is actually down significantly from about 1.5 million just three or, or five years ago. So a considerable amount of progress in a short amount of time, but really just you know, a number that's incomprehensible to the the human mind to consider that many innocent dogs and cats being, um, being killed every year. And that, that equates to, you know, a number that's a little bit more easy to comprehend, which is 2000 cats or dogs every day. And, And most of these are entirely healthy animals that could be adopted. So Christine, why don't you Describe for us, what are the reasons for, in this country, the huge number of pets that we're putting down every year? Yeah, I mean, so when we talk about animals that are euthanized every year, there's like a couple different categories. Obviously, there's healthy pets that are euthanized. There are animals that are euthanized for health reasons. There are animals that are euthanized for behavior reasons. So what we're trying to focus on is making sure that animals that are healthy and adoptable and safe for the public are getting into houses. So it's important that, you know, there are animals, unfortunately, that for whatever circumstances, just the world is just too stressful for them. They've been through so much that they just cannot trust people or other animals. And so ultimately, they're not safe to adopt out. So when we talk about why there are animals that are not being adopted into homes and why animals are being euthanized, there's a couple of reasons. <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a very multifaceted approach to getting animals off the streets and into homes. So in Chicago, it's different from what the problems are in Alabama, which is different from the problems in California. So I can talk to most specifically about Chicago and across the world, of course, and the nation. But I think what's important is that spay and neuter, if we're going to talk about one thing that everyone needs to come away with, that's, that's the most important part. And you know, I think we're at a point where are we providing enough spay, low-cost spay-neuter that people are getting their pets fixed so they're not having unwanted litters? And then are we educating people enough about the importance of spay-neutered and overpopulation of animals in this country so that we're not, you know, so it's not something that we're going and just demanding people do. It's they understand why it's important. Um, so those two things, education and providing resources are really important, especially in um, the South, the Southern states. In Chicago, we have actually, it's really, I'm a volunteer for Chicago Animal Care and Control, which is our local municipal shelter. And I'm sure we'll get more into this all later. I, I feel like I'm going to be all over the place because there's just so much to talk about. But <laughs> yeah, so if I'm ever getting too in depth, I always try to kind of start broad and kind of funnel down. But I, you know, want if this is everyone's first time hearing about rescue, I definitely want to speak to that. But in Chicago, we're doing pretty well, actually. So um, 
obviously with things going on, we're in the midst of coronavirus. So things are very different now than how they were six months ago. But in general, Chicago Animal Care Control has a live release rate, meaning that animals get out of our city shelter at 92%. So that means out of 100 animals that come in, 92 are adapted out, um, which is awesome. So we're in a really good position here in Chicago. And that's, you know, the, we always have work to be done. There are animals that are healthy and adoptable that are euthanized still due to space. And what I mean by that is that generally in the summer, summer months, uh, we have a huge influx of animals that come into our shelters, either from owner surrenders or from strays. Um, and we only have a certain amount of space at our city shelter, right? So then if we become... Over, Every animal needs a cage. And so if we have too many animals, we need to make tough decisions on which animals need to be euthanized. There's not really a time limit. Like I think you, people used to be like, oh, after X amount of days, an animal gets euthanized. And that's just not the case. We try to work and see, you know, which animals have the best chance of adoption. But um, yeah, I think it's important to focus on the positive and the progress and that 92% in Chicago um, at our city shelter are being saved every every year, which is a huge huge increase from where we were even like five years ago. It was like way less than that. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like Chicago is an outlier in this. I, I mean, I obviously I, you have more experience in this, in this area than I do, but just the number of really progressive shelters or, or rescue organizations in Chicago, like one tail at a time and pause that are really taking a, you know, systemic level approach to to this problem to understand what you know the underlying issues that that cause overpopulation are and getting at that and that's that's extremely important and and from my understanding pause is the midwest's uh, largest no kill shelter so i think chicago is a really strong example of the the progress that we can make when we put attention on this issue and and two things i pulled out of your answer in that i I think are the biggest problems, uh, maybe empirically, I don't have data to back this up, but the education piece that you mentioned, which is, you know, until 2014, when I was living in Chicago at the time, and I started volunteering at Pause Chicago, I had no idea about the extent of the, the number of homeless animals or, or the number of uh, adoptable pets that we put down in this country every year. And actually, my family and I, and um, when I was in college, we we considered adopting, but we actually went to we ended up getting a, a dog, my dog Cassie, from a breeder. And part of that was because I just didn't know the the urgency with which lives were were being lost. So I think that education piece is is huge. So what you know, and and I feel like I don't see, even though I see ads from the ASPCA and Humane Society, you know, talking about raiding puppy mills and and that problem. I, I I do feel like it would be motivating to people if they knew that they could save save a, a an innocent life by adopting. So do you agree that there that the the huge lack of awareness of this problem is maybe one of the biggest issues? I mean definitely. Yeah. I think um as you know I think our generation of millennials and Gen Z behind us is I think we're much more aware and socially conscious. And so we want to do quote unquote, the right thing. And we want to help and be socially aware. And um, so I do think that's coming out. And that's why a big reason why our adoption numbers are going way up and our euthanasia rates going down is because people want to help in our society, in our 
in our generation, I'd say, more so than the past. And I also think there's a huge piece of education that there was just a, a lack of like a connection or a lack of awareness between, you know, your city shelter and then the dogs that are in your home or cats. Um, I mean, for example, I volunteered throughout 2000. Um, eight through 2012 at Heartland Animal Shelter while I was in like high school and a little bit in college. And yet we still went and bought a dog. Uh, my family did just because there was that, that, that strange, you know, disconnect of, oh, well, these are shelter animals and rescue dogs. And my family wants a purebred lab. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that just seems so strange to me that that wasn't how I did not put those two together until, you know, if we did adopt um, our our dog in 2012, I think was the first time my parents adopted or we adopted as a family. So yeah, there was I feel a, like there a used definitely... to be I feel like maybe not as much anymore, but there used to be a big socioeconomic divide between those families that adopted and those families that went to a breeder. You know, obviously there's a difference in cost, but there's also a difference in perception. Is is that true? Like it, are increasingly wealthier families choosing to adopt, whereas before they would never even think about it? I mean, I think so. I like to think so. (laughs) You know, I think it was definitely viewed as like a a status symbol if if you had a certain breed. And now I think people are more like not buying into that, which is amazing um, because it's a very silly marketing scheme that they came up with. The breeders did. Uh, So yeah, I do think that it's, it's definitely kind of become this lesser, you know, people don't view purebreds the same way they did in, you know, early 2000s. Um, And they don't view rescues the same way they did in early 2000s. Yeah, I feel like normalizing it. And as you said, as more people, and and that's an issue, I actually maybe will, will go there now. And this is an article from the New York Times that came out recently in the past year that described that the problem in our country actually used to be magnitudes of of difference worse. It used to be we were putting down almost 10 million pets in the country in this country every year, which is, I mean, this gets at the the problem which some psychologists or researchers have called psychic numbing, which is actually that we feel less compassion when we're told that 10 million lives are being lost every year than one life. And I, I've experienced this personally too, you know, seeing seeing uh, an ad on Instagram of a, you know, a heartbreaking ad of a a dog that's, you know, in need just generates so much, um, you know, more urgency to act than the idea that 10 million are. And it's obviously a a bug, not a feature of our our operating system. But even even with that in mind, you know, I, I do think that is one of the problems. But there have been a lot of ways as a country that we've gotten to the point where the number of pets we've we we are putting down is a fraction of that. Would you be able to tell us, you know, some of the positive developments that that have happened that have contributed to getting to the point where you know the Best Friends Animal Society is actually picturing a no kill twenty twenty five, which is just five years away. So, what are some of the positive reasons that that is happening? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think what I was going to mention before, which has come back to me now, is the power of social media is huge, right? I think before we were all getting information from, you know, newspapers and websites and magazines and the power of social media. I mean, that's instant. You see 
an animal in need and you can, you can make it a direct impact almost immediately. And the, the awareness that we all have now, because I think the information is right at our fingertips is this is the result of that in large part, in my opinion, you know, people wanted, they, they saw they could help. And so they did. And like you mentioned, yeah, if you say to me, Oh, 10 million animals are being euthanized every year. Well, that's a really big number. And I, if I even, what's the point of me even rescuing one animal? If I, you know, that's not gonna make a dent. But I think that kind of has gone away over time because now we're seeing that every little bit does help. And that's why we're at, you know, 730,000 today, which is still a large number. But, you know, you can that you can see the huge decrease because people little by little are all chipping away at that number together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, (laughs) that's a probably a really good segue point to talk about Rescue and Style, which is your company, something that came to mind just now. And I feel like I'm almost on the the verge of tears saying this, but you know, we, we talk about these huge numbers and one of the things that strikes me a lot, and actually this is how I open up my, my piece that I wrote on medium, which is called the single greatest thing you can do for another life is that just thinking about Sylvia and Parker, who are my two dogs, just picturing them meeting that fate and picturing them being dragged into a, room where they're, you know, just perfectly healthy, perfectly wonderful animals that they could meet that fate is just, it's beyond, you know, my ability to, to, to cope with that. And and there have been times where I thought about that and just like broke down crying. And I, I wish that, you know, if everyone could channel that level of empathy for considering like just a perfectly healthy, perfectly happy, wonderful animal that otherwise would have had this beautiful life and, and the best life ever, you know, meeting this fate just because of, you know, an action that you, you didn't do or, or kind of a selfish action in, in some cases, I I wish more people could channel that because it's, it's just, it strikes me as so unfair, but you mentioned social media. So I think this is a really good point to tell our listeners about rescue and style, which is not only your company, but your passion project and something I know you spend so much time on. I, I actually, I, we've, we've never met in person, but I've been following you on Instagram for a couple of years and really remarkable all the things that you're doing. So tell, tell our listeners what rescue and style is and the types of ways that you help homeless pets. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Um, Rescue and Style is my baby. Um, I combine fashion and adoptable animals in order to normalize rescue. Um, So what that means is that I was scrolling through Instagram one night and I came across a fashion blogger and she had a post with her and her dog and the dog was a purebred, which you can find in Rescue, but it was not a rescue dog. Um, and I thought to myself, like, wow, she has so many followers. Like, this would be such a great platform for rescue. You know, if she had a rescue dog and just kind of plugged that in or like said, hey, sh-, you know, go visit your local shelter. Like, I thought of this, like, who's doing this? So there's got to be some blogger out there who's a fashion blogger, but also like has like a little bit of a social, you know, pull to it of, of here you can do something good. And here, look at all these cute animals. And, I was searching for it forever and I did not find it. Um, So I said, okay, well, I guess I'll just create this myself because I think this is a fantastic idea. I don't have really a background in fashion. I I never studied it. However, I love clothing and particularly other outfits. And um, I've been volunteering with animals on and off forever. So it just kind of feels like a natural fit. 
So on my, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that I, I arrange photo shoots with rescues in Chicago and, and across the US. And I combine like cute outfits that I'm wearing. And then I have always an adoptable animal with me. And so the goal is that I'm sharing all these animals that needed homes and that someone out there will see these dogs and, or a cat and, and say, oh, I got to have that animal or oh, I didn't realize I could find such and such kind of animal in rescue. And oh, now I'm going to check out my my local animal shelter um, and check out my local rescues. And the goal is to normalize rescue, right? And make it mainstream. And I think it's becoming mainstream. And I kind of am just mm-hmm. trying to help it along, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that's really wonderful. And I feel like you... It's an area, I mean, just as I was describing a a moment ago, it's an area where you can feel a lot of disappointment or anger in some cases. But what I feel like you do really well is, you know, strike that positive tone and share these positive stories. And you you also have a blog, which we'll definitely share in the episode notes for our, our listeners, where you talk about topics related to to rescue and, uh, you know, um, acclimating a new rescue dog to the home, you know, to, to its new home and things like that. So I, I really have always appreciated that you, you find a good mix between educating people and informing them about, you know, the, the different, very, um, heartbreaking issues that are happening in our country with regards to animal welfare, but also sharing those positive stories and reconnecting with dogs, you know, after they've been adopted in, in their beautiful life. So, Definitely, I, I would say you're you're striking that really nice mix there. So, in terms of the education piece, and that's uh, what we were talking about earlier, how important that is. Have you experienced stories from people in the community or that follow you that adopted a cat or a dog specifically, or or took another action because of a, a call to action or information piece that you put out? Yeah, yeah. I I, tr- I try to keep a running list of like I call them wins. Um, because as you mentioned, rescue can be a very devastating and heartbreaking um, industry. Uh, I say industry because it is definitely an area that, you know, people work really hard in and, and no one gets paid <laughs> as much as they should. Um, so I keep a running list of, of my wins because the losses is what we tend to focus on and those will really drag you down very quickly. Um, there have been countless people who have shared with me like, hey, here's my dog. I adopted him two days ago, I saw a post about this and I thought, oh, like I really wanted the dog similar or, um, you know, here's my kittens that I'm fostering. Like I brought them home and I thought of you immediately. And so those things are huge wins for me, you know, cause that's, that's what it's all about. It's, it's not so much about me and the, and the certain specific dog I'm working with. It's how can we make an impact that people are going out and this is becoming a ripple effect. And so those are the huge wins. And yeah, well, I'm, you know, getting emotional talking about it because it's like a, it's a, it's really incredible to see that and to hear that. And, you know, if, if, if they can then, you know, convince their friend to foster kittens, then, then that's three new people that are, you know, that are fostering. So it's, it's great. Yeah. Lots of wins, <laughs> lots of fun things to talk about. Yeah, that's amazing, and I, I do feel like you, you, you have found that social media is a super effective way to communicate some of these things. I mean, just the the rapidity with which you can get out a message on social media, and I think of those times where 
I saw that a dog, you know, because the Chicago animal care and control was very uh, above capacity and there was a dog, you know, otherwise just completely adoptable and wonderful animal, wonderful life that you were able to let the, let your followers know about the urgency of the situation and, um, you know, find, find a home at the very last second for that animal. Do you have a, a story you would like to share to that extent, a, a really rewarding uh, experience like that? Yeah. Um, there's a dog named Josie. Uh, she was at Chicago Mall Care Control. This was about, oof, like 10 months ago now. Um, maybe a little less, maybe it was last summer. And, um, and I forget we're almost like July now. This is insane how fast this year is going. So about a year ago, she was pretty sick at Chicago Mall Care Control. She had a pretty bad, um, upper respiratory infection and suspected pneumonia and um, a lot of rescues, that's, that's an expensive bill to take on. And a lot of rescues can't necessarily afford to take in an animal that has those issues. And um, she's a pit bull type dog. So pit bulls often are very much the last animals to get rescued in our city shelters. And so she had pneumonia. She had a, uh, she actually was time stamped, meaning that there was a date and a time that she was going to be euthanized. And it was the night of, and she had, you know, a couple hours left. And so myself and my two friends, Tara and Margaret, who are the co-founders of Rescue Chicago, we got to work and we said, you know, this is a very sweet dog. We know this dog personally. And so we kind of networked with a couple of our rescue friends and um, Canine for Keeps and Erin saw her and we found a foster for, for Erin. So you know, it's really hard to get a dog out of a shelter quickly because a lot of things have to come together at once. You have to have a rescue willing to pull the dog. You have to have a foster willing to take the dog in. You have to have clear medical. It's a lot of things that you have to line up. And so to have this all happen within a couple hours is really hard to do. And so Josie was very sick. Uh, and if we hadn't gotten her out, she she would be she would be euthanized just because she wasn't healthy. Um, and, you know, we don't want dogs to suffer in our city shelter, of course. So within <laughs> the last piece of the puzzle is transporting a dog out of our city shelter um, because the foster was in the suburbs and he couldn't get to the city shelter in time. So we arranged transport to get pick up Josie with literally minutes to spare, like maybe 37 minutes left before, you know, she was going to be um, euthanized. So she. Um, was rescued. She was fostered by a gentleman named Bob and uh, he fell in love with her immediately. I mean, I actually got to babysit her for a couple of days or just, just a couple hours. Sorry. Tara babysat her for a couple of days and she was the sweetest dog when she was with us. And now Josie lives with Bob. Uh, he officially foster failed with her and adopted her last fall. And he's like obsessed with her and you know, the neighborhood all loves her. And so she, that is a story that we will always, um, share and, and talk about. Cause it's a, it's a good one for sure. That's amazing. Yeah. There's two things that I would say just from personal experience, and we'll talk about some of the ways that actually adopting a dog could make a lot more sense than that going through a breeder. We'll talk about that in a bit, but one of the things I've noticed or, or I've shared is just how rewarding, rescuing a dog is, you know, or, or, or any animal, I, I should include cats or other domesticated animals in there. Obviously I 
I'm always, um, you know, I, I've always been a, a dog person, so I tend to have a bias there, but it's extremely rewarding. And the rest of your life or the rest of that dog's life, you can wake up every day and and see the wonderful, beautiful thing that you did. And why would you, why would you not choose to do that? You know, that's, I hope we can move in a more selfless direction as a society that realizes the, the benefits of doing that. And then the second thing I will say is that, you know, I don't have empirical data to back this up, but I do watch and interact with a lot of dogs. I actually do rover and wag walking on the side. And <laughs> there's probably a little bit of bias there too. But w- one thing I've noticed is that I-, I do feel the rescued animals are a little bit more attentive and a little bit better behaved. And I, I think it's maybe because they've gone through some adversity and they appreciate the the situation that they've, you know, that, that, that they're in now, they really have that gratitude. I mean, it's kind of like taking a person from the worst possible circumstances and putting them in, you know, an amazing situation. Like they're going to have more gratitude for that than if they were just born in that situation in the first place. So those are just two things we'll, we'll talk about other reasons to um, consider adopting, but yeah, you mentioned rescue Chicago. Tell us about that organization. Yeah, that is our, that is my nonprofit. Um, So I have Rescue in Style, which is my business. And then last year, um, I mentioned Tara, my friend Tara, Majid and Margaret Frazier. The three of us got together last um, spring. And a similar situation, another dog kind of put us all together um, to work on. And we're all like, listen, we're kind of good at like, connecting and supporting rescue. So what can we do here? We realize that Chicago does not need more rescue organizations. Um, there are amazing organizations already here doing great work. And I don't think that was the answer. I think the answer was, how can we support the ones that are already in place, right? How can we raise funds for them, um, donate to them more frequently, support with them with um, their fosters or support them with their transports? So Rescue Chicago really is a foundation where we do our own fundraising, right? And people donate to Rescue Chicago. And that money is then spent on animals that are coming out of Chicago Animal Care Control. So we do medical grants where we give, if a rescue pulls a dog that needs a, you know, expensive surgery, we'll help with that. If um, a rescue pulls a dog from Chicago that um, a foster has it, but the foster needs support with walking a dog, we'll pay for the dog walker. We created a transport group uh, so the, there's a, over 200 volunteers that signed up to be part of this transport group that are across Chicago and the suburbs and some, a rescue will post, Hey, I need a, I need this dog or cat transported out of here today by seven. Is anyone able to jump in and do this? And, you know, some, someone who wouldn't have been connected with that rescue previously is now like, Hey, I got it. Like, so, you know, here's my name. I'll be there at two o'clock. So that's another thing we've done. Just kind of finding ways in which we can support. We wanted to help in a way that wasn't another rescue, if that makes sense. Yeah, that sounds really important. And creating more, would you say there's already a pretty, not not necessarily collaborative, but positive relationship between those rescues already, but you're implementing ways to actually connect them and kind of amplify the efforts that they're taking on? Yeah. Absolutely. So that was kind of our, our logo is a picture of the L 
um, the train system here in Chicago because it it connects everyone, right? So you go you take you take that in Chicago, and you're connected to different neighborhoods, and that's kind of what our idea was was connecting all these different parts of rescue and people in rescue and bringing them together for one cause, right? Because we all have the same goal, and that's saving animals, and that was what our what we envisioned was connecting, supporting, providing ways in which we could help. Absolutely. So this is something, you know, a lot of people who listen to this or people out there probably, I, I've had the goal to potentially uh, start my own rescue or definitely get more involved in, in rescue in, in the future. And I'm sure that's something that a lot of animal lovers consider, but there's also very stark realities with doing that. And one of the things that I've had to weigh is, you know, is, are the challenges associated with that? And if one, it, it takes a person with a lot of mental fortitude to do the things that you and Paula Faseas and um, Kristen at Alive Rescue do every day. So let's talk about the two opposite sides of this coin. What What's the most challenging part about working in rescue? Oh, I mean, definitely. I mean, it's overwhelming, right? There's always going to be an animal in need. And one of the reasons I, we, one of the reasons Rescue Chicago decided we would never become a rescue organization is because it's a lot of logistics and planning and a lot of back end work to, to work with one animal and the oversight and the need all the time. It's easy to put yourself in a situation where you're quickly over your head. Um, it's easy to say, Oh, I can really, I can get this dog out of here. Like I just need a home for one night. And then I'll, you know, it can be really easy to put yourself in that situation the the organizations that are doing a great job are you know groups like One Tail at a Time where they're very proactive and progressive in their planning. So to me, like a rescue has never been. I'm of course I've always thought of it, you know, but I would always my goal is to have like an animal sanctuary of, of a farm, <laughs> and just the animals that come there just stay there, right? That's my I don't want to have to deal with like you know fostering and 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 them leaving me. I would just have a farm of like cats and goats and and they can all just stay forever. That's my ten year plan. Um, like our our friend Takis in Greece, although he he adopts animals out. Yeah, I guess I would adopt an animal out if someone wanted like a goat. I you know, and they had a home for it. I I would consider it, but um. <laughs> so in my opinion, so the things that I deal with on a, ba- on a ba- daily basis, the hard part is obviously um, when I foster. Uh, so I'm a big foster or I'm not a big foster. I foster. There's so many people who do it so much better and, and more than I do and have been doing it for much longer. I foster um, kittens and, and dogs, primarily kittens. And over the years, I have lost a couple of my fosters and that's definitely been the hardest part for me in rescue. I most recently fostered a puppy um back in early May and he oh, it was the it was heartbreaking. He passed away. Uh he had a condition a blood disorder uh which we did not know about until he came to stay with us and and we discovered that and, and we lost him about 2 days later. So those are the hard ones, the ones where you you lose the animal. You know, that's always, yeah, we, I, you know, I always swore I would never adopt a puppy or never foster a puppy, but in the middle of coronavirus, you know, you, you do things you normally wouldn't. So we decided to foster a puppy and I think I'm looking at it now. I'm grateful that 
it was us who brought him in versus a first-time foster, you know, because not that I ever want to lose a foster, but I know I can handle it. I know it's a burden I can I can carry. And, you know, it was devastating. I cried for days, but I'm back in it. And, you know, I've already fostered again. And I'm glad that I could give him that gift of um, safety and love. You know, if he was meant to pass away, then I'm glad that um, it was me that could do that for him and not someone who was a first time foster and turned them off fostering forever, you know, and then, you know, that would be horrible. So yeah, that was hard. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That was hard. That, yeah. I haven't in my life lost a pet yet, but I just imagine that's. Yeah. Don't think about it. Don't even (laughs) don't go. Yeah. (laughs) Not, not even worth thinking about because it's, you just cannot, you know, go down that road. You have to live every day with them and, you know, and you can't, you can't go there. The loss is devastating. So, (sighs) but on the flip side, there's been so many great things that have happened too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I wanted to ask you about too. Why, you know, what are some of the rewarding things about working in rescue and why should more people get involved in this in some way? Yeah. I mean, the impact that you can have on just one animal isn't, is incredible. Whether you, you're donating, Everyone can do something, right? Whether it's fostering or volunteering or donating or fundraising or, you know, getting involved and educating, there's some way where everyone can get plugged into this. And, you know, to me, I've worked with more than 500 animals now over the last couple of years with Rescue Chicago and Rescue in Style. We've raised more than $50,000. We've helped so many animals find their forever homes. You know, I told the story of Josie earlier and there's countless others I can talk about. You know, the most rewarding, I think a lot of people think fostering is hard because they would get so attached to the animal that they're fostering. And absolutely, I mean, you absolutely will get attached to whatever animal that you bring into your home. But I can tell you that the best part of fostering is when you get that text from a previous foster of yours and the doctors and they say, oh my gosh, look what so-and-so did today. I'm obsessed with him. Thank you so much for, you know, letting us have him. You know, it's an incredible feeling. It's overwhelming. Um, the amount of joy. So I feel like I have now more than like 60 animals that I have that are mine just because of, I played a part in their life and, you know, they've gone on to live these amazing lives with people who are obsessed with them. And that's a really cool gift to give people is their, um, their animals. Yeah, that's, that's really great. And it is extremely rewarding, you know, in, in thinking about the, the difference that you're making in, in that animal's life. I mean, I, my dogs are extremely lucky and they, you know, the, the, the life that they have, the amount of activity that I give them, the amount of adventures that they go on, you know, it's, just it's rewarding to, to think about, you know, that, that difference that you're making and how happy, you know, it's much more rewarding to see someone you care about happy than it is to make yourself happy. And I, I just, you mm-hmm. know, by doing something, you know, it, it is extremely rewarding. And one of the things I talk about in my, my piece, my, um, my article is that, and, and this is related to the, the idea of, you know, just the, the problem being so big or the magnitude being so big and, it's seeming like a faraway problem. You know, that's uh, the, the philosopher Peter Singer has 
illustrated this with some thought experiments where he, you know, asked us to to imagine, you know, we're walking by a shallow pond one day and we see a child that is, you know, drowning and we would risk basically um, nothing except maybe damaging the nice suit that we have to save that child's life. And of course, you know, everyone would say we, we should do that. We should, you know, risk our suit. But in our life, because most of the problems, most of the, the children who are dying are far away and out of mind, we we don't make that decision and we don't make that financial commitment in our lives. And I, I think the same is true of the animal welfare situation. One of the things in Chicago that's really great is that a lot of the shelters are centrally located. You know, when I you used to work on Well Street, you would walk by Animal, the Anti-Cruelty Society every day, and you would see these wonderful, beautiful animals that need homes. And that's one of the recommendations I make is to make make their suffering or make the fact that they're there more salient. And yeah, that's, that's something I, I struggle with, not in the communities that I live in, you know, just not having that, that shelter centrally located where people can see these wonderful animals. Uh, I, I do think is a barrier to, to people taking action because it, it, you know, making it very visceral and making it upfront is, is important. So, and, and that's why I think organizations that do the community events and go to Petco and, and places like that to do the adoption events are, that's, that's a really great way because it's, it's hard to, you know, to walk away. I mean, that's probably why you (laughs) as an animal lover have provided a home to so many animals is because, uh, you know, you, you see the problem, you see the, the life that you can make a difference in firsthand. Yeah. So, so going to talking about, you know, normalizing rescue and talking about a lot of the the things that people don't aren't aware of, which we, we started out this conversation with, I, it strikes me a lot of the time how many people don't realize that you can get even a puppy in rescue or that maybe puppies are one of the most common types of dogs rather than adult dogs, or maybe there's a, a split there in terms of adoptable animals. And one of the reasons, one of the most common reasons that dogs end up in rescue is because their owner relinquished them. So it could be, as as you point out on your blog, actually 25% of dogs that are in rescue about are purebred animals because they were, they were bred and a family purchased them. And then now they're no longer with that, that family. And there's a perception, I think, which is illustrated by this um, op-ed that a lady wrote in the New York Times, or, or not an op-ed, but a letter to the editor where she said, I would rather have no dog at all than a rescue dog. And I think a lot of people categorically describe rescue dogs at, in in that way that they're they're broken in some way or they have behavioral issues, they're, they're damaged goods. Does, does that have, you know, do you think that problem that perception still exists and does it have any validity? I think I hate blaming the generation above us, (laughs) but I really do think that um, that was the perception years ago, you know, that these animals were surrendered because they're problem animals or they were surrendered because owners didn't like them or didn't want them or they were bad animals. They somehow were not good enough to have a home and I think the reality is, you know, from volunteering and working at Chicago Animal Care Control is that animals get surrendered for a multitude of reasons, um, namely 
moving and landlord issues are the top reasons that I see animals coming into the shelter for, which is of no fault to the dog. You know, usually you see if people crying when they let their animals go. So that speaks to a whole other issue we can get involved into is fixing the actual issue versus, you know, the root of the issue. And, uh, but my point is that yes, dogs in shelters and cats in shelters are usually there not because of their own reasons. They're usually there because of, um, you know, reasons that affect the ability for the family to care for them, whether it's a landlord or a loss of a job, the birth of a baby. There's a lot of things that happen that the family can no longer provide for that that animal. So no, are they broken in any way? No. Um, Does every animal have a quirk? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that's kind of the beauty in rescue is that when you, when you adopt an adult dog, you know, especially one that's already lived in a foster home, you kind of know what you're getting. You know, that's the best part is, oh, like this dog hates the water and loves laying on the couch and it doesn't need a lot of walks every day. This is the perfect dog for me. Like that's my dog. <laughs> um, versus someone who's more active, who's like, oh, this dog loves going for runs and needs that like daily exercise. So he'll motivate me to get out of the house. Like, you know, that's a perfect fit for someone else. Or, you know, there's Things that we learn from adult dogs that for one reason or another, you know, we can find their perfect fit versus when you buy a puppy from a breeder, you don't know what that dog is going to grow up like, right? You know, you don't necessarily, especially, you know, if you're not given the proper trainings and the proper socialization, that dog can develop issues. And then that, that family that you thought, oh, we are prepared for a puppy, but we didn't put the time in for this puppy. And now we want it to be more tired and it's it's so active this is not the right fit for our family and we see that too you know this dog just needs too much attention and I can't give it to it so yeah that happens that happens a lot in rescue and I think um I think if you can find a dog that's been in a foster home you can find a really good fit for what you're looking for and yes if you want a puppy there are thousands of puppies you know like I said and especially in the summer and the springtime there's it's so many puppies, so many puppies. So you can find one of those and they're adorable. And or usually, or, oh, don't even get me started on kitten season. Kitten season, <laughs> whew, we are in the thick of it now. There are kittens galore um, coming through that need homes every day. So yes, you can find a kitten or a puppy in rescue. And, you know, can you find a purebred puppy in rescue? Can I guarantee you'll find like a purebred pug and res- puppy pug in rescue? No, that's going to be really hard to find. But, you know, at some point we got to put our preferences, you know, in the backseat. If it, if it means I, you know, I, I adopt a, a retriever mix versus a golden retriever because that's what needs my help. Then, then you know, I think then that's important too is, you know, if you're very set on a breed and a, a certain type of aesthetic, you know, it could be hard to find that as a puppy and rescue. But hopefully people are willing to kind of give something and, and, and so that they can adopt a dog and, and find their perfect, perfect animal, whether it's a puppy or an adult dog, you know, you can find it. Right. And on that last point, you know, the idea that people have a certain preference, I mean, for, you know, for Sylvia, the, the dog, the first dog that I adopted, I don't think I would have ever, you know, if you ask me, what's your ideal dog? Maybe it's just that I don't didn't have a strong intuition on that, but it probably would not have been a a great Pyrenees mix who happened to have one eye. 
And on the second, the second dog that I adopted Parker, I literally told pause. I said, whichever dog there needs a foster the most, whichever really just needs to get out of the shelter, I will take, it doesn't matter. So I didn't even meet him until, you know, I didn't even know what kind of dog he was until I met him in person and sure he has his challenges, but I just love him so much for who he is. And Mm -hmm. I just think it's a very, it's just a really wrong intuition that people have that, oh, I have this like particular, you know, conception of a a dog that I want to get. I mean, you will end up loving the animal that you adopt or or that you choose so much. It won't matter, you know, what their, honestly, I think their, their behavior or their, their personality for you and the fit that they have is more important than anything aesthetically. You know, if they, if, if you want a dog that is friendly with other dogs and or is super active, you like to take them on hikes or you want a dog who loves to play fetch so that when you throw them the ball, you know, they they, you know, like that. I mean, that's that's basically Parker. You know, you can do that. You can you can find that fit so much more easily in with an adult dog in in rescue than you can, you know, taking a chance. And the other thing I wanted to say to your point about you know, people's perceptions about uh, adoptable dogs, I, I think is a lot driven by the shelter environment that they see them in. I mean, it, it can be a little bit of a jarring experience to, especially if you've never been a volunteer before to see animals, you know, they're, they're barking a lot, they're, you know, agitated most of the time, but you have to, I mean, this is so important and probably a, a problem, you know, there's so many problems here to talk about, but a problem that people have is separating that animal from the environment that they're in. You know, you, you take that animal into a different environment, into a more calm environment, and they're a completely different animal. They're not going to be the same agitated, uh, barking their head off animal. And I, I just hope that people can get beyond, you know, the initial reaction that they see when they, when they enter the shelter. Yeah. So Chicago Mill Care Control, we have adopters come in. And one of the things that we stress to them is that these dogs are stressed when they're in a shelter, right? Most of the time. I mean, some are could care less and they're just <laughs> la-di-da, right? But most of the animals that are in our shelters are going to be stressed because they've had either they've been surrendered by their owners and they have no idea where they are, or they've been on the streets for a while and they're astray. You know, we don't know where their background is, but they're now in a situation where they're in a you know, a facility with, well, usually it's about 250 other under dogs um, and a hundred other cats, you know, so it's loud, there's people coming and going, you know, it's a, it's a new, they're not going outside as much. It's not a normal environment. You know, it's not, it's not an environment that they thrive in. So when adopters come in and they meet um, a dog or a cat, we always, especially for dogs, um, we stress, like, give them two weeks of just like, nothing. We call it like a decompression period, a chill period, you know, don't take your dog to the park. Don't, you know, a dog park, don't take your dog to the pet store right away. Like let them go to your home, put them in a bedroom, give them food and let them chill for like two weeks, you know, like take them on walks, keep them short. Don't introduce them to family and friends and don't have a party right away, you know, cause their stress levels have to come down before they, if they're going to, you know, if you want to set them up for success, right? So we, we really stress like a two week of quiet, low comfort, like Netflix marathons. Um, because you're, you're, you know, when the stress level comes down, then they're going to be more likely to be able to handle new introductions with people, new introductions with dogs, 
you know, if, if you have a stressed dog and you shove them in this situation right away, then something can go wrong and the dog has to go back to CACC. So yes, the shelter environment is not like a, the best environment. Um, so we always try to have people like, this is how he is here, but he might be very different at home. He might be more chilled out. He might want to play more, you know? So it's hard to predict behaviors outside of the shelter. We do as best we can, but of course, you know, it's a different environment than it is at home. So absolutely. And that's where fostering comes, comes into play too. You know, that's like, I mean, that's like test driving a car or getting the opportunity mm-hmm. to, you know, take, take a car home for a month and decide if it's the right fit for you. You know, that's, that's what you can do with, with fostering and you can really yeah. see how the dog adjusted to being in your home, how it adjusts to your lifestyle. And I saw something, I, I saw a stat recently that I think it's if one or, or 2% of households in America fostered a dog regularly, we could eliminate euthanasia tomorrow, basically. Yes. So, so it's that's a Petco Foundation statistic, and I'm actually a Petco ambassador. Um, so yes, if 2% of animal owning, so people who already have animals, so people who already love animals, you know, we're not asking 2% of the country to do it, but if 2% of people who already have a dog or cat brought an animal into their home, we could end like um, euthanasia tomorrow. Yes, that's the stat. 2%. Isn't that crazy low? It is. And I mean, it just speaks to individual action. You know, the the action that you take really can make make a big difference in that that compounding effect. But Mm -hmm. yeah, and I, I mean, obviously, my priorities are different than the national priorities. But the fact that we're my conception about suffering overall is definitely extended to animal suffering and the, you know, the fact that in our country we're putting down almost a million innocent, healthy lives every year is a moral imperative to address. And especially for animals that are so, you know, well-liked in society and and so beloved as, as dogs and cats, like that is, I would hope something that you know, everyone can take away that if, if there's no other message they take away, it's that they can go and foster an animal tomorrow and be a part of the, the solution to ending, you know, ending the k- killing of innocent lives. So this is actually maybe my f- favorite question that I put together because this is, you know, just there's things that people say to justify why they shouldn't adopt or, or why they, they choose not to adopt and choose to go through a breeder instead. And from my experience, most of them are, are not really valid. So why don't we go down this list one by one and you can share Christine, if, if these reasons are valid or if they're not, why, why they're not valid. So the first mm-hmm. would be, it's possible to adopt and shop responsibly. <sighs> yes, I will absolutely say there are breeders out there who are reputable. However, and this is a big however, a huge majority of them are not. <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 almost impossible to figure out which breeders are reputable, which are not. You know, they try to have like an overarching stamp of approval by the like AKC, which is the American Kennel Club. Um, a lot of breeders have that accredi- accreditation, they call it, accreditation. And uh Unfortunately, there was just a bust, you know, a year ago with a quote unquote reputable breeder who bred show dogs and he was, if they raided his house, 
because there were a couple of complaints and it, horrible conditions, horrible conditions of these animals that he was breeding. Hun, you know, there were hundreds in his home, deplorable, and people had no idea because he was a quote unquote reputable breeder. So, can you do it? You can find a breeder, yes, who's reputable. However, I don't believe most people are equipped to understand what a reputable breeder would be and what that looks like. And I don't think we're there as a society yet. I think adoption is the only really responsible way to go right now. Yeah, but what about, so there's also the kind of zero sum nature of this where if, so if everyone just took the attitude, well, so in, in just so to be clear about what is meant by adopt and shop responsibly. So it's basically saying, well, there's some people who adopt and then there's some people who shop responsibly. It's not like, because, you know, the, the saying is adopt, don't shop. So people's counter to that as well. You know, you guys do your thing. We'll do our thing. But what that runs counter to is the importance of getting to a place where we are, where, where no innocent lives are being lost. And in my mind, until that is the case, it's not possible to shop responsibly because that means that basically you, you know, you could have adopted, you could have saved an innocent life, but you chose not to. And because of that, there is that zero sum nature of, well, now, you know, basically now a, a life is lost. So do, do you think that's the case? Am, am I thinking about that right? Yeah, I mean, it's, yes, I do. I think that when you adopt, you really save two lives, the one that you adopted, and then the one that gets to fill its space in the foster home or the shelter. Absolutely. So when you adopt, you're absolutely saving two lives. When you buy a dog, I do think that now a dog will not get that chance will not get that space. Um, Yeah, you, you do kind of sentence another dog to wait longer and possibly get euthanized for sure. Absolutely. That's my opinion. <laughs> so you, this conversation or this part of the conversation sparked something for me that I remember there was an article in the Chicago Tribune about the store that I actually lived right near on Clark Street where they sold these mm-hmm. small, you know, designer dogs. And mm-hmm. I think there was a connection, you know, they were basically coming from puppy mills, which if people mm-hmm. are not educated about yeah, why don't we just say quickly what what a puppy puppy mill is, Christine? Yeah, so puppy mills are just these horrible, you know, breeding places. They're you know usually someone's house, and they have like a backyard, and they're filled with kennels, and just the 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 mom or the breeding mare is stuffed in a cage and forced to be bred. You know, she's raped basically over and over again by uh, the male dog and then she'll breed puppies and the puppies become six weeks old and are younger and they're shipped off to a pet store. And the mom is then left to breed again. Um, There's basically no health regulations really um, for the dogs. They have their horrible conditions. The moms are brutalized, you know, over and over forced to breed. Um, deplorable. No dog should be in those conditions. Um, That's a puppy mill in general. And 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 these are, these are legal. These are legal in some states still. Yeah. um, Well, there's just, you know, unfortunately, um, animal cruelty is just such a far, there's just not really great laws around it. So um, no one really cares to enforce the standards that are already in place. So yeah, a lot of people get away with that. Absolutely. The connection to to this is that 
those horrifying, horrifying conditions and the animal cruelty that those those beings are being subjected to end up producing these cute, lovable puppies, but you know, and that end up in these these small stores or at I, I, I believe that most of the dogs that are being sold, not being adopted out, but being sold at small pet stores come from puppy mills. And so what would you say to someone who sees that dog and, you know, from their perspective, it's like, okay, well, this is the kind of dog that I want and it's here. And now, you know, now what am I to do? Well, I want to help this dog. What would you say to that person? Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing is people think like, oh, well, I I felt so bad for this puppy. Like, you know, it was kept in this little cage and I just wanted to save it. So I, I bought it because I felt bad. And unfortunately, what you're doing is just reinforcing that there's a demand, right? So if people stopped buying puppies at pup store or at pet stores, the demand wouldn't be there. It's all about the money, right? So if there's no money coming in, there's not going to be someone selling it. So if dogs had to sit around there and no one bought those dogs for six months, that store would be out of business. But instead, people see it and, and they take their money and they give their money to these stores that are then it just it's a horrible cycle. And I get it. It's awful to see a puppy in these stores and you're like, oh, it's so cute. And I feel so bad. I don't want to stay overnight by itself. And, you know, you want to save it. And that's, that's what, you know, these stores are probably also set up like they're, they know people feel that way. So unfortunately, yeah, they're horrible. A side note, I don't know if you're aware of this, but that pet, so in Chicago, it's actually illegal to sell puppies um, that are not rescue puppies. So that passed uh, like about two years ago. Legislation so you can't even, that. there's no such thing as breeders then? Well, so the idea was that, yeah, any, any puppy that was sold in Chicago had to be a rescue puppy. That was the goal, right? So that none of the dogs that came, that came from pet stores could be like puppy mill puppies or whatever. Now, of course, our friends who own pets, there's, so there's three pet stores in Chicago land area that were affected by this and they got together and they paid for their puppy mill breeding place to become a a 501c3. So the pet, the place where these puppies come from, registered themselves, registered themselves as a 501c3 kennel. And so now these puppies that they ship to the pet stores in Chicago are quote unquote rescue puppies because they come from a nonprofit organization. Does that, yeah, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. Um, so they're still selling puppies under the guise. So now they've even made it, you know, it was a great part of a piece of legislation. And then these jerks found a loophole that they could exploit and they did. And so now they go in, people go in there and they're like, Oh, are these all rescue puppies? And of course they can say, yeah, they, they, they come from a nonprofit out in Missouri, you know? So, yeah. So what I would say to that person, <laughs> if it were me, I would say, you know, I would do due diligence on where these animals come from. And mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a way to demand straight answers on that, but I would make sure as hell that it's, you know, that they're, they're not coming from a puppy mill. And if, if there's a intuition that they are, then I would try to, I would make it clear that I'm not going to buy the animal because of their practices and that I shun those practices. And I would try and tell the store owner that they should give these puppies up for adoption and shut, shut down what they're doing. So, you know, there's a way that 
you know, you can, you can help that animal and help the animals going forward by not purchasing that animal. I, I know it's hard in the moment, but that's probably the, the best way. So let's talk about some, some other things that people say. The world is a better place having dog breeds and people who say adopt, don't shop are picturing a world where there are no breeds anymore. And that is not a good world. What would you say to that? I mean, I love breeds. I have a purebred greyhound. <laughs> um, I love breeds. I love all the different colors and kinds and all their quirks. And now I don't think we'll ever get to a place or world where breeds won't exist just because no matter what, you know, people are going to be stubborn or people are going to want their breeds and people are going to continue to bring dogs. And I think that there will hopefully be a way once we get the uh, under control, you know, why dogs are coming into the shelters and helping animals spay and neuter. Once we kind of get that under control, my hope, my hope is that we are able to have some overarching system in the, the U S that really does, you know, like a best friends program that, you know, educates breeders and, you know, I probably get in trouble with saying this, but yeah, it, eventually maybe like a hundred years down the road, I hope this is happening where we have no more animals that need homes and shelters. So we can then focus on, okay, well, how do we set up animals for success and how do we treat these animals kindly? And what does that mean for us? You know, but I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're close because listen, we have 730,000 animals in Chicago or in the U S that are being euthanized. Um, Puerto Rico has a huge overpopulation of stray animals. Um, Spain, I work with a rescue group in Spain that has, um, thousands, tens of thousands of dogs are killed a year. So we can go on and on. Like, you know, once we solve our problems in the U S we'll be able to hopefully help the world too. I don't think we'll ever get to the point where there will be no breeds. I think that's a very extremist look at this adoption stuff. So no, I think that's just ridiculous. And you can find any purebred and rescue right now. I mean, not any, but majority of purebreds. If you're a patient, you can find that in rescue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, as we talked about earlier, the most common reason that a dog enters the adoption system is that their owner had to relinquish them. It's act, it's not because mm-hmm. they were, I mean, I'm sure close is the overpopulation issue of un, unwanted linters or, you know, breeders that are being irresponsible that that's probably mm-hmm. close, but actually the most common reason is that a, a family chose or had to relinquish their animal. And that's why there are a lot of uh, purebred dogs in rescue. So and that kind of addresses the the question about, you know, well, I want a specific type of dog. It might be harder and you might have to wait more time, but, you know, you, you that there's that possibility too. So a lot of people say, I have allergies to dogs and it's hard to find a hypoallergenic dog in rescue. Yeah. To them, I say, do your research because there's no such thing as a hypoallergenic dog, <laughs> period. In rescue, wow. in purebred hypoallergenic was a marketing term that was come up like that was going around the world in general. And so breeders were like, ah, boom, we got our answer. Let's market them as hypoallergenic. Um, There's no such thing. There are dogs that are lower allergen dogs, which would be like a Maltese and their poodle. There's many other dogs that have that. And you can find those dogs absolutely in rescue. And the best part, like we were talking about is you could foster one of these dogs See if it's a good fit. See if it triggers your allergies. If it does, you don't have to, you know, you don't keep that dog forever. I think that's the 
that's the amazing part is that you can find the animal that fits you before spending a ton of money and purchasing a dog. And then it just, it gives you, you know, triggers your allergies later. I can't tell you how many dogs are marketed as hypoallergenic that people buy and that they turn out to be like one of the most um, allergen producing dogs that I've come around. Hmm. Wow. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. So there, there you go. So what about people who say, and, and this is actually a, a larger discussion point, which I have a follow-up question to you about, but it's, you know, people who are deterred by the adoption process. And I've personally experienced this, you know, what about people who say, well, I just, I kind of want a puppy now. And I know that I can go to a breeder and buy a puppy tomorrow. And they kind of diminish those ethical considerations. What, what would you say to them? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, I mean, I won't lie. Rescue is not the easy way to go, right? Rescue is you have to apply. They have to process your applications. Some require a home visit, some require a phone call. You know, there are definitely more barriers to rescue than there are to purchasing an animal, um, unfortunately. And that's, you know, you can look at that two ways. Rescues care about where their animals are going. So they want to make sure it's a good fit. And breeders, if they're just going to give you an animal based on like a payment, a PayPal payment online and then ship you a dog, is that really a good breeder? You know, do they really care about that animal and where and it's home? Now, on the flip side of that, do I think there are a couple too many barriers to rescue? Yes. Most people who come to rescue are coming because they have good intentions. And I think we as a um, industry need to recognize that. And One Tail at a Time has been doing great with being progressive and taking away those barriers. They've eliminated home checks, you know, to get these animals into homes. And if we assume, if we come with, to the table that people who are coming to rescue have the best of intentions then I think we're going to have a much better time. You know, the last, we're our own worst enemy. If we turn people away because they're quote unquote, not good adopters. Well, if they want an animal, they're going to get an animal and then they're going to make it. They're going to the people that we're trying to work against, which is, you know, breeding and backyard breeders specifically and puppy mills. So yes, we need to eliminate barriers and make it a more welcoming place. And then also educate those who we feel like might not be the best adopters for one reason or another, we need to educate them and help them become better um, pet owners for sure. For sure. And you sparked another thought there, which is that I feel like people tend to generalize one interaction that they have to a broader system or a broader set of, you know, ideas. I mean, so, so I've seen on message boards before, you know, people criticizing rescue dogs because they had one interaction where their dog got in an altercation with a, a rescue dog or people are deterred because, you know, I, I had a, a disappointing experience applying my dad, rather a second dog. And I had a disappointing experience with a, a rescue organization. And some people might come away from that and say, ah, you know, every, they put up all these barriers and it's too much work. And, you know, what I would say to that is don't generalize one encounter to a, a larger set of circumstances. And a related point to this is that um, speaking about the the breed issues, you know, people have this conception of, oh, you know, golden retrievers are great family dogs or Labrador retrievers are great family dogs or 
you know, something along those lines or German shepherds are extremely smart. And those things have some validity, but really every dog or, or pit bulls are aggressive. You know, that's probably the most common perception that people have. But every dog is an individual. I mean, there's probably no more important point you could make. And having interacted with so many so many dogs, you know, I mean, it's basically like racism. Like, you know, I, you know, black people are not as, you know, worthy as, as white people. Like it's, that's basically the same thing as saying that pit bulls are aggressive writ large. So all the interactions that I've had, every, every pit bull I've ever met is literally so well-behaved and sweet. And, you know, the, the media here in Detroit has blown these, these, these uh, occurrences where a pit bull attacks someone out of proportion. And really it's the, it's the people's fault. You know, the people who didn't provide their dog with good socialization and and wasn't in the right condition. So, you know, every dog is an individual and, and also maybe share how it's, it's true that adoptable dogs or, or dogs that have a mixed background tend to be healthier and have, you know, less medical expenses than purebred dogs, right? Oh, absolutely. And really quickly, I just want to, um, go back to your point. I think we have to be careful about, um, comparing racism to, breeds of dogs and prejudice against certain breeds. I think it's a very different situation, actually. And I think we have to be very mindful, as, especially, especially as as white people with all their privilege. And I think that's a quick comparison that we make in animal rescue. But I think that's a, a very different subject. And years of oppression is, is, is not going to um, even compare to, you know, the judgment people find about um, different kinds of breeds. So I'd like to say, like, let's maybe... Maybe backtrack on that a little bit. Um, I think that's important to to talk about uh, with everything going on that we are very proactively learning more and and educating ourselves because I've seen that a lot in rescue and I think that makes me um, we can do better. We don't need to be making those comparisons. But yeah, I do think that mutts are <laughs> much healthier in general. That we, uh, you know, I used to work at a vet for five six years and. I, I would see dogs that were purebreds come in all the time with so many health issues. And then these mutts that like people adapted, but come in at like 16 years old, like spring chickens, you know, <laughs> they had no issues. I mean, it makes sense at a yeah. genetic level, you know, the, if, right. you, if you're aware, if you know of the concept of inbreeding, if, you know, that's why incest in humans is, is not a good idea because if you copulate with someone who is extremely similar to you genetically, it creates problems. And that's the same, same is true with, with dogs, with, with animals in the wild, with, uh, you know, any, any species. So if, if you have a golden retriever that it has very similar genes to this other golden retriever, it's just likelier to create complications than if they, if, if they are dissimilar. So we're, we're coming up against time and I, there's so much, so much to talk about. One, one thing that is always on my mind and you have a really great perspective on and for the people who are very passionate about rescue out there, that's probably challenging for them as well is uh, just seeing, you know, seeing people who choose not to adopt or, or, you know, for whatever reason, who, who maybe are, you know, going out to get a dog that they think, as you said, is hypoallergenic and they have to have that. But I also think there's not enough thoughtfulness in that, that I, I see people just making decisions, you know, like the, the golden doodle breeds or the, the, the doodle breeds are becoming increasingly popular. And that's like, I think a function of people seeing, oh, well, that dog is, you know, my friend has it and it's so cute. And, you know, 
not obviously accounting for the larger issues and, and being thoughtful about that and maybe not taking responsibility to, to do it. So nowadays, you know, it, it kind of makes me sad to see a, a purebred puppy rather than, you know, seeing it as a wonderful thing. So that being said, how do you view people who go through a breeder and does it give you a, a similar sense of disappointment or resentment? I mean, I'd be lying. Yeah. If I said no, <laughs> you know, I've had friends and, and family even, um, buy dogs and recently too, you know, not just like, you know, years ago, this is like, while I was in the middle of working with so many dogs, I, um, yeah, I've definitely been through it. And it, I, you know, there's two things. I take it as a personal failure because I failed. I feel like I failed to educate them on this. You know, it's like, how come they don't get it? How come, what am I doing wrong that they're not understanding that dogs are dying every day? Um, you know, what did I miss? What me, 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 right? Like, I feel like this is my failure. And a big thing I had to learn is that sometimes people's minds just cannot be changed. Um, unfortunately they're set on what they want and I think it's selfish, but that's what that's at the end of the day, it's not my decision. It's their decision and their decision is not a reflection on others, right? Like on me. Um, so it was a very hard lesson to learn. I'm still, I still struggle with it, you know, and it's, it's his heart. And I think the important part is that it's easy to judge when I see dogs walking down the street. I'm like, Oh, it's a pity. Like, Oh, I love it so much. Um, and then I see like a purebred walk by and I like give it the cold shoulder. Right. Cause it's, it's like, Oh, I don't want to acknowledge, you know, I don't want to give them this positive reinforcement that their dog is so cute because then it enforces the idea that they should go to this breeder again. In reality, I've been corrected so many times with purebred dogs. Like, oh yeah, we got we adopted this this um, German Shepherd, you know, from a rescue, and so I feel like an idiot, and I, you know, I that's my own fault, and I. So I think that's important is like not jumping to conclusions because I've been corrected so many times <laughs> when I thought a dog was from a breeder and it was really a rescue dog. Um, there's so many mm -hmm. there's so many purebreds in rescue. We have to keep that in mind. The second part is if you do find out that a dog, you know, is bought from a breeder is what can we do to help to make sure that their next dog comes from a rescue, right? So if we approach them judgment with judgmental tones and we kind of, you know, brush them off and don't talk to them and then we're not going to, we're not going to help them find their next rescue. You know, we're then shutting them off to the rescue world and they will remember that interaction of like, oh, well, you know, that rescue person was kind of a jerk. And so, no, I'm not going to go, you know, they just proved my point that I, I don't want to deal with rescue people and I don't want to deal with that society and that environment. So I'm going to go and buy my dog and do my own thing. So I think it's important that we also keep the conversation open, that we're continually checking ourselves for judgment and, and you know, keeping that in check. Exactly. Yeah. That, that second part is so true about there's certainly more that will be productive coming out of that engagement of, you know, sharing with them, you know, your, your rescue animal and talking about that, than just shunning, shunning them completely. And that's a th something I have to keep in mind. Something I struggle with too, is just seeing, yeah, seeing friends who made that choice, knowing that the, knowing that this was something important to me and knowing that I had shared this education with them. You know, I've, I've had a couple instances like that. So this is a big area that I struggle with is like, what, what do I do about that? You know, do I, you know, is there, is there any personal capital that I have to like 
to change their mind now? Or, you know, how do I feel? I mean, I'm, I'm a vegetarian too. And when I go out to dinner and, you know, everyone is ordering steak, it, it not only makes me a little uncomfortable, but it's also, you know, I, I want to change their minds, but I also don't want to be living on an island of ethics by myself. So how do you think about that? Like about, I, I think this is probably a lot of people who are, you know, have a, a strong moral compass think about is like, how do I incorporate people? Still have friends. <laughs> yeah. How do I have, have friends and live according to my values? Yeah, I think it's hard. I mean, I'm also vegetarian, but you know, I, it took me 29 years to get there, you know? So like, who am I to say like, you should be a vegetarian tomorrow, right? Versus like, instead, what's what I've seen that's happened is that I have been starting to make vegetarian recipes and share them with friends and family. And now my dad, who is like, he has a smoker, right? He makes meat, like all this stuff. He loves meat. He's insisting on impossible burgers for Father's Day, right? So I think there's a way to to, to do it and also to do it where it's like, let me share what I love, but not jamming it down people's throats, right? Where you're giving people, respecting people, like my husband still eats meat and, you know, that's his choice. And it took me, you know, this, that's what works for him. And, and what works for me is going to be different. And I think if we all just strive to do better every day and, and when I cook meals, he eats vegetarian, you know, like that's, that's how, how that works. And I think we have to be careful that we're not being preachy and so boxy because people don't want that, but rather oh, hey, this is a really good meal. Like, you want to try it? Like, can you believe this is vegetarian? And, you know, then you're there. And same with rescue. You know, it's, you know, I think you got to lead by example and you got to be open and, and still warm and, and it's hard. But everyone has their, my friend once told me, like, everyone has their passions, right? So mine is animals and animal rescue. Others, you know, could be education, the education system, which I know nothing about. And I'm probably extremely ignorant when I, choose to do the things I'm doing with my, you know, money, there's probably ways I could make it more impactful with education here in this country. You know, so there's, there's, we have to be respectful of that too, is that everyone is hopefully, you know, got their own passions and their own things that they're fighting for or that they're aligned with. And I think, you know, we can't just be quick to judge people and shut them down and, and know everyone's on their own journey. And if someone told me five years ago, like, oh, stop eating meat. Like you need to do that now. I would have been turned off. I would have been like, okay, like vegetarians are mean and they don't want me to, you know, like I'm not, I'm not going to do with that. You know, I think that's a very, that's a lot of stuff I just said, but I hope that, I hope that answers the question. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, I, I think you have a lot of a, a good perspective on that and it's, it's a struggle. I mean, it, it really is. And I think you said two things, which are very important. The first is that you, you and others, I mean, you know, I'm amazed by someone like Paula Faseas, who, you know, she's probably one of the least judgmental people that I've met. And she's, she's the founder of Pause Chicago and has saved, probably done more for, you know, uh, animal welfare than 99% of people in our country. And, but she has very little judgment and she, she takes the same approach that you do, which is like, the only way to make progress is to be non-judgmental and to continue to engage people and have a positive message and be optimistic that your model for them can can change their mind in some way. So, yeah, I think that's probably the way more productive than shunning people or, you know, closing off to them because of the, the choices that they make. 
but it is hard to find those those cases to bring up change. And then the second thing that you said is people have different priorities, and it it, it is frustrating sometimes that to think like your your priorities or the problems you care about are the most important, and not mm-hmm. understanding how people can see things differently. But they probably also, like you mentioned about education, like you know, there's probably problems in there that I'm unaware of that people are like, how can you not see this? How can you not be motivated mm-hmm. to spend all of your time working on this? So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, um, yep. those, those are two very, very important points. So we're, I, I want to ask one last question and then get yeah. to questions for everyone. And this is an important one. So one thing I've noticed being in the rescue community is the progress that needs to be made about reversing stereotypes. And this is something that we've touched on a little bit. And certain breeds have a certain perception, uh, like like pit bulls. And for some reason, I, I feel like pit bulls, I don't know why, but you know they, they, they're like the most common by far type of animal at, a, you know, especially at the, the city shelters. And I think probably one of the reasons for that is, you know, the, the false stereotype that they've gotten of, which is completely engineered by humans of, you know, being aggressive animals. So mm-hmm. why is it, or, or yeah, why is it that pit bull mixes are so common in rescue and how can we move towards a society that realizes like people, every dog is an individual and, Pitbulls should be treated in that way too. Whew. So the first reason is that pitbulls are hard to adapt out into homes for issues because of landlord reasons. Um, a lot of landlords don't allow them, and the reason they don't allow them is because of insurance. So a lot of insurance, like homeowners insurance and renters insurance, won't cover certain breeds, and pitbulls are almost always included in that um, list of breeds that that insurance policies won't cover. So a landlord cannot rent out to an animal that it doesn't cover um, under their insurance. So that's a really big issue. We see a lot of animals coming into the shelter because of landlord issues. And that generally means the landlord won't allow it. And that usually is because either maybe their own prejudices against the breed or because of, you know, their, their insurance won't cover that, which a lot of insurances actually don't cover pit bulls, which is crazy. Not good. Um, and then the second, you know, another reason it's obviously breed restrictions in buildings. So a lot of buildings, like especially high rises, they have um, breed restrictions here in Chicago. So um, pit bulls are definitely on top of that list too. So now we have, you know, people who can't have them because of landlords and people who can't have them, have them because of their HOAs. Um, so that's a huge group that we're excluding from this adoption pool. So the pool for adopters for pit bulls is already small. And then we add such things as, yeah, the human conditioning of these dogs are quote-unquote aggressive or they're quote-unquote you know mean dogs or you know they how many articles you see that just say like pitbull kills owner you know but you never you know because they hype in the end and what is a pitbull anyway there's no such thing as a pitbull it's not a breed we have the american pitbull terrier which is a breed and we have the um uh oh gosh sorry blanking thank you Staffordshire terrier yes and then there's the american bully so there's all different kinds of this that we group in and lump into this pitbull type dog but um you know that's not really a breed so it's what makes a pitbull a pitbull okay because it's a medium-sized blocky headed short-haired dog so now we're just going to classify everything that we can't put our finger on as a pitbull so there's a lot of issues i mean yeah absolutely and um the running joke at CACC is like, I will leash up a pity, 
way before I leash up any small dog in a cage because I don't know why, but pitbulls, I've never had an issue with any kind of dog that looks like a pity. Um, I've had a dog that looked like a lab bite me um, at CACC and I had, you know, not bite full on, but like it got scary and I was like, okay, I don't think I can handle this dog. And, you know, it wasn't a pity. Um, so there's a lot of reasons. There's also, I mean, racism is a big part of rescue, unfortunately. And I think I'm starting to learn more about that and open my eyes to that. And I think pit bulls are definitely, they're not viewed the same way as a lab is. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with race and racism in, in the in the country. So there's a lot of reasons why pit bulls are the number one dog in our city shelter. And there's also backyard breeding that's going on. And a lot of those backyard breeders are, they have the pity type dogs. So Oh, I don't know what the answer is to it. I think a lot of it is working to eliminate the ignorance around the dog and the, the quote unquote breed. Uh, working with landlords is a huge thing and demanding that insurances don't blanket all these different types of breeds because they're deemed aggressive. I think that's going to be a huge help um, in getting rid of breed specific legislation. Legislation. Denver, Colorado, you can't own a pit bull just because the city of Denver, Colorado says no. Like, hmm. it's insane. Wow. So, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why pit bulls are, unfortunately, the number one dog in our city shelters um, and across the U.S. And I hope, and we're slowly making progress. I mean, I have a sweatshirt that says, like, pit bulls don't scare me. Ignorance does. Because I think if you educate yourself around it, you spend time around these dogs, you really start to see that these dogs are actually, like, the most goofy, lovable, ridiculous like chunky little things. So, I mean, I've never, I haven't had an issue at CACC or with, you know, working with pities that I've ever felt like this dog could hurt me or will hurt me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is, I mean, nothing makes me happier (laughs) than that. I think you just in the last couple of days, there was that adoption story that you posted. I can't remember the dog's name, but it was like a, I think you you always come up with funny ways to describe them. It was like half, what was it like? Half oh, was it Piggy? Piggy, yeah. What, yeah, like, ha- what, what, what? yeah, tell us about Piggy real quick. Oh, Piggy is just like a, sm- she's just like a squish. Like, she is just literally, like, her ears are, like, from Shrek, and her body is just like a, a smushy potato. So she was adopted recently um, during quarantine, uh, and so I posted her the other day, and she is just the cutest little hippo thing you ever seen and yeah Yeah. i mean that just makes me so happy because yeah that obviously there's this you know conception we have about like the perfect dog or the you know perfectly beautiful person and it really is wonderful to see people put their self selfishness aside and to see the wonderful life that they're adopting well this is this has been so great christine and i really hope that a lot of people take some of the messages we're seeing here carefully and into heart. We have a tradition of asking the these these questions of everyone and I'm excited to get your your answers before we part ways. So if you could meet one person in the world who's ever lived and spend the day with them, who would it be? Um I think this is so cliche, but uh Oprah. <laughs> and I say that because as a <laughs> You know, and like I said, like that's probably everyone's first thing too. Is, but I think as a woman growing up, you know, there weren't very many 
women on TV that were had a prime time spot that had their own show, you know, that were really doing good and that was spot highlighted. And, you know, she has her own criticisms and everyone will, but I think she encouraged people, one of the first people to really encourage people to do good and keep doing good things. And she's here from Chicago. Um, and she's also, and then from that, she's created an empire, you know, she is multi faceted and so brilliant. I would love to sit down and talk to her for like an hour and just pick her brain and be like, where should I go with my brand? And what do you think this thing? And what do you think of that? You know, I think should be um, an invaluable resource. And the things that she's done is incredible. Her school, you know, that she has created for young women. It's, it's awesome. So yeah, I think I would love to sit down and, and chat with her and, and meet her and laugh with her and have a glass of wine. Yeah. I mean, her story is super inspiring. It, you know, the American dream is broken in many ways, but she definitely embodies it. I think she was like one of 11 or 13 children, something like that, and grew up in one of the poorest areas of, I'm not getting this totally right, but like grew up in one of the poorest areas in, I think, Mississippi, like rural Mississippi, and has made it, you know, to become a, a billionaire just on her own determination and charisma. I mean, that's, you know, that's as cool as, as it gets basically. So, and she, sure. she yeah. visited pause Chicago before. So you'll oh, have yeah, to, I'm sure. yeah. you'll yeah. have to know when, you know, the next time that she's coming to town is yeah, have Paula, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put in a good word. So Thanks. secondly, if you could offer one recommendation um, and I think I might know what your answer is. So I, I, was going to say a book or a podcast or something, but, but anything that's been transformational for you, what would it be? Yeah, I, I definitely volunteering and it doesn't have to be animal volunteering. That's just what, you know, I love and I'm passionate about, but volunteering in any capacity is going to always bring you back to like a sense of self and um, humble you and give you more gratitude and I think make you a better person. So whatever cause you're passionate about, um, get out there and do something, you know, get out there and, and work, um, whether it's homelessness or mental health or social justice or civil rights or, um, animals, <laughs> you know, I think there's something that, something that absolutely like you can, you can get plugged into. And I think it'll change your, your life truly. Yeah, it really will. There, there was, there's this researcher, her name is Lori Santos and she has, she's a Yale university professor and <clears throat> her whole area of research is happiness. And she says that volunteering is one of the, one of the most sure ways that you can, you can do to increase your own personal happiness, which seems a little bit counterintuitive because, you know, when you volunteer, <laughs> sometimes you kind of encounter, you know, difficult situations or it can be, you know, some, sometimes it, it can be um, depressing, but it's really, you know, feeling like you're making a difference is super important. And I, I love that recommendation. So yeah. Yeah. Lastly, if you could solve any problem in the world, what would it be? I think <laughs> I even start with that. Um, of course people are going to say like, Oh, like animal cruelty, like that's her, that's what she would solve. But I think really animal cruelty is the result of, um, humanity, human cruelty, uh, you know, animals don't suffer on their own. You know, they suffer because of things that we as humans are, are faulting with. So I think if we could solve like humanity, <laughs> you know, where we're lifting people up, we're helping with all the, all the causes that, that create the human 
issue, I think then that we would solve the, the animal cruelty issue. I think that'd be a result of that, you know? So yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's like one problem or like nine rolled into <laughs> one, but, but I think, um, yeah, I think if we could make humans happy, then we would have the result would be, uh, would be animals wouldn't suffer anymore. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, for someone who cares so much about animals, it's, that that was one thing I was going to say earlier is that sometimes I, I I feel like I pick up like criticism or or there's this argument of, you know, how are you so focused on animal causes or like the environment mm-hmm. when humans are suffering everywhere? And I I so so my take on that is similar to what we were saying earlier, which is like you need people to care about everything. And some people are more passionate about making sure that there's no plastic straws that end up in the ocean and, you know, saving sea turtles and marine life or, or saving, saving cats and dogs, then they are, you know, eradicating cancer and and that's okay. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't put those different issues on a continuum or, or, you know, say that one is more important than the other. I think it's important that everyone be passionate about different things. And I admire that, you know, you, you care so much about people as well and are doing so much to help people, which we, I I would have loved to ask you about what these past two weeks have been like as well. So that's, and I like that you chose, chose one answer. Well, (laughs) (laughs) this has been very fun and I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. And I think, I think we had a conversation that everyone who listens to it, I hope, you know, takes something away and I hope we can, continue to chip away at, at the problem of the, you know, number of, of innocent lives that are being lost, um, each year. So thank you so much for your, your time and thank you for everything that you're doing for the homeless pets in Chicago and in the world. And you are someone to be, to be admired, putting your, your personal passion and, you know, to, to use in such a positive way. And thank you for, for all of that. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, this has been a very, great conversation i think there's so much to talk about always and um you know i think there's a lot we're learning from each other and i've learned some stuff from from you today so thank you for having me it's been wonderful and i'm happy to have to be a part of it so thanks thank you yeah i'm oh and one last thing i forgot if someone would like to connect with you um where where can they do that or where you know what's your your instagram and and Facebook, it's just rescue and style, right? Any any other way that people should reach out? Yeah, you can. My Instagram is just at rescue and style. Um, Facebook, you just Google rescue and style, and then my website is just rescueandstyle.com. So, or you can find also rescueshy.com is my nonprofit. So, any of the above, if you Google my name, I will should pop up pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, this is something I think we should point out. If someone wanted to, if someone's in the Chicago area or planning to visit soon, how would you recommend, can they get involved with Rescue Chicago or Rescue in Style? How would you recommend they get involved? Yeah. So we actually have a um, volunteer survey and we actually have a foster survey. So people who are looking to foster or volunteer, we have them fill out a a little short Google survey. Um, we go through their answers and we connect them to a rescue we think that they'd be a good fit for, right? So some rescues, you need to have a car. Some rescues, they have people that can help with transport. Other rescues have vets in the city. Some have vets in the suburbs. So we go through all of that and we go th- and say like, hey, you'd be a great fit for 
one tail at a time. You'd be a great fit for Fetch and Tails Foundation, um, which is a really another way where we kind of just are connecting people, right? And then if people were interested in volunteering, we also have the volunteer survey where people can fill that out and we um, can send them to different rescues that have more openings for volunteering. We don't really need volunteers ourselves. Um, sometimes we do have days where we're like, hey, if anyone's available, we're looking to get a group together, you know, t- to do a XYZ food drive or something. Um, and then rescue and style. I used to have um, a lovely intern who was uh, the so sweet. And now she's in law school. So I've let her unfortunately go. Uh, but if someone wanted to help me with rescue and style, you know, there's not like a ton of cool things, hands-on things right now going on with coronavirus. But I'm always, you know, in need of a, someone wanting to help with the back end of things. So if they were interested in helping me or working with me, then that would be something I could, you know, talk to them directly about for sure. Very cool. Well, we will, I'll, I'll put all of those, those links um, in the show notes and yeah, thank you again so much. And I should be back in Chicago. You know, I'm, I'm living in Michigan now, but I'll be back